0: Let's go ahead and uh, begin with a word of prayer today. Lord, we thank You for Your kindness, even as we um, have been singing and are reminded of this uh, season, this Christmas season. We are reminded of the incarnation of Christ uh, coming to this world. We recognize that this is nothing that you were required to do. Um, You would have been just in letting us go our own way, and yet you are a merciful God and sent Christ to redeem children for your own name. We rejoice in that and ask that you'd help us to be people of the word, that we'd be people, uh, a praising kind of people. That we would find you continually sufficient, we pray in Christ's name, Amen. Well, it is uh, that time of year, but I-, I wanted to squeeze in one more First Corinthians sermon to keep us somewhat on track uh, before we uh, spend a couple of weeks looking at some Christmas um, themes. And so we're going to pick up where we left off, uh, which seems like an eternity ago, but uh, we left off in First Corinthians. Uh, chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 24, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through uh, 24. Uh, This is an interesting passage in many ways, um, and uh, it's a passage that uh, I've wrestled with, and perhaps some of you have wrestled with as well to try to understand what exactly as, uh the Apostle Paul trying to say here. Some of you know, as I've shared uh, before, um, that there was a, a season of, of my own life in college, uh, early college, where I don't know where I had absorbed it from, but was starting to absorb this way of thinking that if, if I really wanted to serve God and wanted God to be happy with me, like not just one of those mundane Christians, okay, but if I really wanted to be one of those Christians that God was going to say, I mean, just Marino, he's set apart from the rest of them, then I had to go into some sort of ministry field that would involve a lot of suffering, okay? Have you, has anyone ever thought this way before? Like, let me just go to the place on the planet where there's the most persecution because then I'll be the most spiritual if I, if I go there, Anyone else relate to that in any way? Some, a couple of you? Okay. Um, well, maybe it's foreign to you. But that's kind of this thought process that I had found myself in. And in order to make God be really happy with me, then I really had to go and, and serve in some kind of uh, way that, you know, bullets are whizzing by my head every day as I go out to get groceries and this kind of a thing. Um, well, thankfully... The Lord um, has really helped me understand since that time um, that this kind of a lifestyle is not necessarily indicative of a, quote-unquote, spiritual person. Uh, You can, in fact, serve God right where you are. In fact, I know that sometimes people will talk, Oh, I'm going to go to the mission field, and then when I go there, I'm going to serve in these great ways. And my response is simply, are you serving where God's called you today? Are you serving right now where you are? Um, Because if you're not serving here, if you're not serving now, if you're not serving in your own local church, what makes you think that if you go to some really, you know, uh, some other place that, that you would serve God more faithfully there? In order to understand what Paul is going to say, and I think he's going to hit on this theme that we've been talking about here, in order to understand why Paul says what he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, it's going to be necessary to go back a little bit and remind ourselves of the broader context of what's going on in 1 Corinthians, and specifically 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, You might recall, though again, it's been a, a couple of weeks here, that Paul was responding to a question. 1 Corinthians 7 opened up with Paul responding to a question coming from the Corinthians about sex. And so you see in chapters 5 and 6, there was a group of Christians who were very licentious and they wanted to just be able to have sex with anybody, Then we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we learn that there's another group of people here in the church that believed that sex was bad, even in marriage. And so you can see that things were very sticky in the church of Corinth. And it can be said almost certainly that these two groups of Christians in the church at Corinth probably did not get along with each other too well, because they were taking drastically different views in this particular area. Dealing with these kinds of disagreements, by the way, and tensions in the local church is what we call pastoral shepherding, Uh, shepherding through these kinds of things. And shepherding was urgently needed in Corinth because the barn was on fire. Now, Paul had already disciplined the licentious group with really a two-by-four, and those people are still reeling from that uh, discipline. But he isn't totally finished yet with the legalistic group, and they're also going to get a stern talking to in the passage today. And so, in a sense, today's passage, we're still kind of in the woodshed a little bit. And the reason that we're still in the woodshed is because these Corinthians had made uh, a miscalculation. And this is what the error was that these Corinthian Christians were making. They believed that when they became a Christian, absolutely everything about their former lives had to be relinquished. Absolutely everything. Now, to be sure, there is a lot of truth in that. But there's also a lot of falsehood in that. For example, let's say that someone who was perhaps a prostitute converted to Christianity. Everything about their former life needs to change. There's really nothing that you can bring over from that kind of a lifestyle and say, this is now compatible with Christianity. But on the other hand, if you are, let's say, a railroad conductor, not everything about your profession would have to change. Certainly the way you go about your profession, certainly your attitude and, uh, and, and, and those kinds of things would need to change. But you wouldn't have to stop being a railroad conductor in order to be a Christian. There's nothing wrong with being a railroad conductor. Well, if you remember from our first sermon in chapter 7, the the Corinthian Christians, or at least some of them, were under the delusion that their pre-Christian marriages and the accompanying sexual relationships within marriage, that those things were bad and needed to be abandoned. Now this is especially true, or this was especially true for these Corinthian Christians who had unbelieving spouses. And so you can see kind of what they were thinking. They These unbelieving Christians, I'm sorry, unbelieving Christians, that doesn't work, okay? <laughs> I just get going and then I... So these unbelieving people were married, two unbelievers, and then... One of them gets saved and is a Christian. And now this Christian is looking at their unbelieving partner, and they're saying... I've got to divorce that person because I'm a Christian now. I can't be connected with this unbeliever, and I, I cannot be having a sexual relationship with this unbeliever is the way the thinking was going. But if you remember, Paul instructed these Corinthian Christians in verse 12 that they should not rush to divorce their unbelieving spouses. Said, don't, don't, No, stop, pause, hold on, don't do that. Don't go and do that. They should not, as the old adage goes throw the baby out with the bathwater. But that's exactly what they were doing. So Paul tells them that when they become Christians, they first need to check the water to make sure they're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And so today's passage is really in many ways about slowing down and making rational decisions instead of making emotional decisions. What is it when I become a Christian, that needs to change. And what is it that's been part of God's common grace that I don't need to change? I don't need to rush to this particular decision. I would suggest that the text <clears throat> today is really about serving God right where you are. You can be a Christian wherever you are, rich, poor, America, China, China. Whatever job you have, you can be a faithful Christian there. And I think that's what the text is instructing us today. Let's go ahead and read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 17, <clears throat> we read this. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can uh, gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity." (coughs) For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. So, this is the outline that we're going to follow today. And it's a kind of a little bit... Uh, um, Maybe of a redundant outline, but I simply just followed what the text was doing. And so we have the principle stated, the principle illustrated, the principle stated... The principle illustrated. The principle stated. And he goes back and forth again and again and again. And if you notice, you'll see that verse 17, verse 20, and verse 24 is all a very simple statement, a one-verse statement of the principle that he's trying to get across. Lead the life the Lord has assigned to you. Remain in the condition in which you were called. In whatever condition you were called, remain with God. He's saying simply, this is the principle, and then he illustrates this principle twice. So in verse 17 is the initial statement of this principle. Uh, Paul writes, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. This really, this one verse, is what this whole passage is about. And everything else that comes in this series of verses is repeating or illustrating this initial principle. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him. Whatever God has assigned you to, lead that life. It's okay if it's different from someone else. So one of the things that we have to wonder is how universal this principle is, and we're going to get to that because there is some clarification of this principle, I think, that we'll see. But in the meantime, we are concerned with what this means and what we are to do as a result of this command. Notice in this verse that uh, Paul gives a plug for God's sovereignty. He uses uh, words like assigned and called, right? Do Do you see kind of that God's sovereignty seeping through this passage? that the Lord is the one who assigns, the Lord is the one who calls. Other translations will render these words as distributed or uh, apportioned. It's something that God has has passed out, so to speak. It's something that God is in charge of, that God is is sovereign over. This is an acknowledgement of the fact that God has intentionally placed people... In differing positions of status of wealth and health, and so on and so forth, in fact, in second Samuel or sorry first Samuel two and verse seven, who is the one who makes poor and rich? Who is the one who makes low and who is the one who exalts it 's the Lord, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. he brings low and he exalts. The fact that we must recognize then according to these uh, passages here, is that God has placed us here intentionally for a reason. God has placed us in this time, in our vocations, and in this country at this particular time for a particular reason. You are not here on accident. You were not born the date you were born by accident. You were not born into the country you were born into by accident. You were not born into the social situation you were born into by accident. You may recall uh, Gandalf's wise counsel to Frodo when Frodo wished that all of the bad things of his time had happened in another time. Right? You remember this? And what is the, the wise counsel of Gandalf? He says, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that's given us. We don't have the ability to decide what time we were born in. Uh, We have to decide what to do with what is given to us. Tolkien was right about this. And if I can maybe read in the lines a little bit, Tolkien was also right about time being given to us. Given to us. It's not ours to create. And I would suggest this reflects the teaching of Christ himself. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives the parable of the talents. Remember this, remember this parable, the talents? Does the master give to the servants all the same amount? No. He gives each one a differing amount. And then what does he do? You want to talk about offending modern sensibilities. When the guy with one talent buried in, in the ground and the master came back, he takes that talent away from him, and who does he give it to? The person who had the most, he gave it to that person. As an aside, and this is maybe a small plug for our 9 a.m. service that we're resuming next week, this passage creates a number of problems for uh, the Christian who wishes to embrace the current social justice movement. God does not give to all of us equally. God gives to us differing amounts And that's okay. In fact, that's good because it's designed by God. We do not all have the same amount of money or the same kind of status and society and all these kinds of things. This is something that comes, or as the text today says, is assigned to us by God. God is the one who makes rich. God is the one who makes poor. God is the one who gives. God is the one who who takes away, and God has assigned you your particular lot in life. Now, what Paul is saying then, based on all of this information, is what? God has assigned this to you, God's given this to you, this is part of God's sovereignty, God makes rich, God makes poor, God does this, God does that, and then what does he simply say? Stay where God's called you. Stay where God has placed you. Now, since we are a people who really love to qualify everything probably asking, is this like absolute in every way possible? Does this require any kind of qualification? Are we allowed to make any changes at all? Or do we have to perfectly remain, you know, do we have to keep the same job that we have forever? Do we have to live in the same house that we live in forever? So on and so forth and these kinds of things. What exactly is Paul getting at? Our first impulse Uh, whether this is right or wrong, I think that our first impulse on this text is to ask, is this principle a universal principle? And we're going to get to that, but not for a couple more verses. In the meantime, we're going to see that Paul illustrates this principle in verses 18 through 19. And so this is what he says. He's given the principle, and now he's saying, for example. You want to know what I mean by stay where you are? Here's my example. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision nor, or accounts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Paul, in his first example, says, and, and obviously this is less of a deal for us today than it was in this, this particular day, because to be a Jewish person was to be circumcised, and the the big debate was, should you be circumcised in order to become a Christian? Should you first essentially become Jewish and then become a Christian? Is Is that how this progression works? Paul is saying that you should not seek to change this area once you've been regenerated. God has called you, as you are, either circumcised or uncircumcised, and you should leave it at that. Now, I know that probably all of you are thinking the same thing, and you say, I know what it means to be circumcised, but how could you remove the marks of circumcision, as this text says? And I will just say briefly here that there was a surgical procedure in that day that could be done to remove the appearance of circumcision. Whether this is exactly what Paul is referring to is not totally clear. He could be figuratively talking about this. He could simply be saying, you don't have to become Jewish to become, or, or, or vice versa. Um, but the point is not so much in those particular details. Uh, the, the point is that Paul is saying you can serve God in either state that you find yourself. He, he's, don't worry about being circumcised or being uncircumcised. J- just, you can serve God right where you are. To be circumcised or not, has no bearing on your ability to carry out faithfulness to God's commands. Therefore, you should not bother yourself about changing that. Circumcised Christians are not better Christians than uncircumcised Christians, and uncircumcised Christians are not better Christians than circumcised Christians. And that's easy enough for us to understand. But not everything is as easy as that for us to understand. And so we naturally ask, what other things must change? and What other things must not change? And so on and so forth. And so Paul states the principle a second time now. He's given the principle, and he says, for example, here's some stuff about circumcision. And now, let me go back to the principle again in verse 20. He says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Simple enough. Restating the same principle again, stay where you are. And once again, this is a recognition of sovereignty, okay? So you may want to write that next to verse 17, next to verse 20, and next to verse 24. Sovereignty, God has placed you in this particular position, God has made some poor, he's made some rich, he's made some good at certain vocations and others good at other vocations, and some are married and some are unmarried, and there's a great diversity in the specific ways God has called each of us, Um, and so he's saying stay where you are. And I want you to see what the imperative verb is. Imperative verbs, of course, are verbs of what? What? command, yeah, verbs of command, so the command in the passage is remain. So we are to remain where God has called us, which leads us back to that nagging question that won't go away about whether there are any exemptions. Does this mean, for example, that if I am a plumber when I get saved, I have to remain a plumber for the rest of my life? Well, This next illustration is hopefully going to shed a little bit of light on this particular topic, because this is what Paul gets into next. So we get into the principle illustrated again in verses 21 through 23, okay? He says this. Now, pay close attention here, because it sounds like Paul is saying something, and then he's like totally undermining what he's saying, okay? So he says this. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Go, go ahead and, and, and take advantage of it. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Now, Things get a little interesting here, because it seems like he has not even gotten out of this paragraph yet, and he's already broken his own rule. If you're a bond servant, just don't worry about it. But if you can get out, go ahead and get out. Well, which one is it? It sounds like he's saying, you know, okay, everyone, listen up, calm down, calm down, everyone, calm down, stay right where you are, but you don't have to stay right where you are, (laughs) okay? (laughs) What, What exactly are you saying here? Paul is not suffering from schizophrenia here. He's giving us some divine principles, and we've got to dig a little bit to understand exactly what he's saying. His illustration is that if you are a slave when you are regenerated—and by the way, don't think of uh, American slavery when you see biblical slavery. They're two different things. They're actually different forms of slavery in Scripture— and much of what you see in Scripture is oftentimes more of what indentured servitude would be. Um, so so when, when Paul is saying, don't be concerned about it, uh, this is different from the American idea of slavery um, where it was involved man-stealing, uh, which the Bible specifically prohibits. Um, so these are two different things. But Paul is saying, um, he's saying, Uh, if you are a slave when you're regenerated, then you should not be concerned about it. And then he says, if you can get your freedom, go ahead and get your freedom. So which one is it? Don't be concerned or get your freedom. Do we get to pick? How how is, what's, what's going on here? Well, in verse 20, Paul says, remain where you are. And then in verse 20, basically says you don't have to remain where you are. So what did this mean for first century Christians? And what does it mean for us, 21st century Christians? Well, let me give to you, let's tear this apart a little bit, okay? I would suggest to us that the principle to remain where you are cannot mean that one must always remain where they are, and there's two reasons for this. The first reason is that if God intended this to mean, you must always remain exactly where I am. If you are a plumber, you can never change that. If, if you, the reason that he doesn't mean that is because of the context. He could not have written verse 21 to encourage slaves to not remain where they are. If he had meant you absolutely have to stay in every possible way. If you take verse 20 to mean stay put, and verse 21 to mean don't stay put, then we have a problem. Uh, If you take those verses that way, then there has to be some sort of misunderstanding. Verse 20 has to be compatible with verse 21, right? We believe in the harmony of Scripture, right? Okay, so it has to be compatible. Um, So maybe we've misunderstood verse 20, or maybe we've misunderstood verse 21, and i would suggest that verse 20 does not mean always remain where you are and never make any changes why because of verse 21 that's reason number 1 so verse 21 says if you can avail yourself to the opportunity to not be a slave anymore then go for it so verse 20 can't mean in every and all way every situation you must absolutely never make any changes at all fair Okay? That's reason number one. Reason number two is because elsewhere in Scripture we do have admonitions to not remain where we are. Okay? So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to keep this somewhat in context by staying in First Corinthians seven. Okay? First Corinthians seven nine says. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than burn with passion. Okay? Remember we saw this first a few weeks ago? Okay, He's not saying, it, it, he, he couldn't mean, okay, if you're not married and then you get saved, you have to stay not married, because clearly he's saying you can do that. So there are situations in which you can change Okay. But I want to give a second passage that I think is even more instructive. And the reason I think it's more instructive is because his first illustration had to do with circumcision. Remember what he said? If you're circumcised, don't get uncircumcised. If you're not circumcised, don't get don't don't do that. Well, what do we see in Acts 16:3? Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. So Paul did this. Now, I just wanna make one note here, and I I wanna make it very clear of a direction that we're not going in, okay? The theological liberal would look at this and say, see, Paul was nuts. So, we don't have to listen to Paul, right? It, 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 see, scripture is, wow, it, it's just all over the place. And uh, let me just make it clear that that is not an option for the Bible believing Christian. The Word of God is our authority. And so if something appears to be contradictory, then we have to remember this it appears to be contradictory, it is an appearance. And so we have to ask ourselves not oh, uh, you know, how, how, this, just, this must not be, um, you know, a contradiction. We have to simply say, how are we misunderstanding the particular passage in front of us? Because they are compatible. They do work together and agree with one another. So what is going on here? Here's what we have. Paul says, remain as you are. If you're not circumcised, don't get circumcised. And then Paul goes ahead and circumcises Timothy. So how does that work? And second, Paul says, if you're a slave, be content. But if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. So I would say because of these considerations, the principle to remain where you are cannot mean that one must always remain where they are. So what does the principle mean? They've talked about enough of what it doesn't mean. What does this mean? What is this saying Positively. Here's what I would suggest that Paul is saying. Paul is saying that one can be a faithful Christian regardless of their status. So let me say that again. You can be a faithful Christian regardless of your status. Changing positions and status is unnecessary in order to be a godly Christian. That's why he's saying, stay where you're He's saying, guys, calm down. You don't have to... You can be a faithful Christian and be rich. You can be a faithful Christian and be poor. You can be a faithful Christian and be a plumber. You can be a faithful Christian and be a lawyer. You can be a faithful Christian and be whatever. So we so simply telling them because what, remember what they were doing? They were going crazy. They were saying, "I can't be married to this person anymore because I'm a Christian now." And he's saying, "Just stay where you're at. Calm down. You can serve God there too. You can serve God here. You can serve God there." Changing positions and status is unnecessary in order to be a godly Christian. A slave could be a godly Christian, according to this text. A circumcised or uncircumcised person could be a godly Christian. A married or unmarried person could be a godly Christian. A plumber can be a godly Christian, dot, 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 etc. Now, again, I've said this once before, and I'm going to say it again, just so I'm not misquoted here, okay? It goes without saying that this is not referring to a sinful lifestyle, Okay? You cannot be a godly Christian if you are a prostitute, if you are a thief, or if you are anything sinful, okay? This is clearly not what this text is saying. We understand that from uh, all of Scripture. This passage is talking about that those aspects of culture that are not necessarily inherently sinful. You can serve God here. You don't have to, and for me, this was, you don't have to go to a country where your constant bullets are going past your head all the time in order to be a godly Christian, right? You can serve God here and now where he's called you. And so, you see, the cultural context was that as soon as these Corinthian Christians got saved, they immediately believed that Absolutely everything needed to change. And certainly some things did, but not everything. So to the Christians from the first 16 chapters, or 16 verses of chapter 7, Paul is saying, hold it, calm down, don't do anything rash, take it easy. You can remain married to your unbelieving spouse and still be a Christian. In fact, you should do that, unless, as Paul says, the unbelieving spouse wants to separate Then you let that happen. Now, because you can be a faithful and godly Christian in these areas, you should be slow to change your status just because you become a Christian in these particular areas, okay? You following where the text is taking us now? We are thus called to live a faithful life as a Christian balanced here. On the one hand, we are to avoid rash behavior and rash decision-making and just changing absolutely everything with no guiding principles. On the other hand, we also are to avoid passivity. D- do you see how the text addresses that problem too? This is not a call, well, I'll just stay where I'm at. I'm not going to make any change. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to be here and I'm just going to—it uh, doesn't cause—how does it address that problem, too? Because if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. He's not saying be, pa- be passive here. He is calling us to live, really, according to wisdom. And certainly some of these situations, depending on where you are, may require that godly wisdom that comes from a multitude of counselors. I'm thinking about changing this particular status about my life. Could you please give me some input from Scripture to help me understand is this a wise decision or not? Just don't make rash decisions is what Paul is saying here. One of the lessons here, and it's a lesson that the next couple of verses make clear, is that if we are to implement a change, we have to have a theological reason for that. Okay? So I'm going to make a change here. Let me think, what does scripture instruct me to do? So let's read these two verses again here, 22 to 23. He who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. The reason that slaves should seek freedom is because why? According to this passage, they are free in the Lord. You're free in Christ. So if you can, make your physical life match up with that, is what he's saying. And um, this freedom in Christ kind of looks like a different kind of slavery, which sounds odd, but that's what the text says. If you're free in the Lord, then that means you're a slave of Christ. So you're kind of a slave in a different way. You are bound to obedience to Christ. Verse 23 makes that very clear when he says you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. So you could maybe underline that in your Bible or circle it, and you could write next to it the gospel. That's the gospel right there. You were bought with a price. We're reminded of 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that with the lamp, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Um, now, there's some, look at verse twenty-three. There is something significant to see in verse twenty-three. Not that other passages in the Bible don't have something significant for us to see. But there is something foundational in verse 23, something, if you would permit me to use Paul's language from later on in chapter 15, something that is of first importance here. It is the phrase, again, you were bought with a price. Now, what is so important about this? Well, first, this is a statement, a restatement of the gospel message itself. The gospel message is central to Christianity, right? Christ is central to Christianity. And so it would make sense for the gospel to come up again and again and again and again in scripture. The gospel is the message on how sinful man can be made right with God. You realize that's our biggest problem as humanity is that we are sinful and God is holy. That's our problem. God's holy and we're sinful. And the gospel is what fixes that problem. Do you realize the implications of that problem? The implications of God's holiness and my sinfulness is that I can never be in the presence of God. And God made a way for me to be in the presence of God by sending Christ to die on the cross and to give me his righteousness so I would be credited as being holy. That's justice. Mercy too, but he didn't do it unjustly. So that's the gospel. The message of the gospel says if you repent and believe on Christ, you will be saved. There is absolutely no contribution that you make to that transaction except, as one theologian has said, the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation. And by the way, if you are here today and you don't know Christ, may I exhort you to repent and believe on Christ today. We are all sinful. You are sinful. I am sinful. We say this again and again. We are not the good people. And Christ made a way so that we can be forgiven based on God's acceptance of Christ's righteousness and not ours. But how is this relevant in our present text? Well, it's relevant to all the Bible. But it's relevant for this reason specifically in this text. Paul cites the gospel as the reason for not becoming bondservants of men. Why shouldn't you do this? Because of the gospel. Because of what the gospel says about who you are. Which means, and this should go without saying, but we're going to say it anyway. This means that the gospel should influence my behavior. So, when you are making these changes, this is why I said you have to have theological reason for this. I'm going to move to this house. I'm going to get this job. I'm going to go to this church. I'm going to marry this person. One of the things that we should ask ourselves fundamentally is: How does this further the gospel? How does this adorn the gospel? How does this point to the goodness of Christ in redemption? What are the ways in which this furthers God's kingdom? We are to be gospel-minded in the ways that we are making our decisions. Jim Hamilton writes this. He says, yet again, the basis of Paul's appeal that the church live in appropriate ways is the gospel. The basis is the gospel. The fact that they've been bought with a price. Through judgment, they have been saved for God's glory. This means that the gospel is not merely relevant only for people initially coming to salvation, but the gospel is relevant in a person's life every single day after their salvation. The gospel, uh, um, and this is, again, sharing some of the ways the Lord has helped correct my thinking in certain ways. Um, I remember a time in my own life where I thought the gospel was only relevant for me to be saved, and then I don't, what do I need that for? That's for unbelievers now. I can move on with my Christian life. No, the gospel is relevant for every day. It, it influences the way you make decisions. It gives you the grace to make those decisions and on and on and on and on. We should, as Christians, live out the implications of the gospel on a daily basis. Okay, final verse, 24. Principle stated again, third time. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. So just in case it was unclear the first two times. He states it one final time. You can be a faithful Christian wherever you are. Again, unless you're doing something sinful. Then you have to put that off. But whatever status you are. All right, so what are we to do with this text today? Well, there are a number of ways that we could apply it. We could, for example... Uh, explore the ways in which this principle influences the way we view our government. We could say that one could be a faithful Christian under a democracy as much as one could be a faithful Christian under communism. And yet, if we wanted to fully apply the passage to this scenario, we might add, but if you can get your freedom from communism, avail yourself to the opportunity. We could likewise make the observation that, uh, to stick very close to the situation of this text, that one can be a faithful Christian, married or unmarried, and they could be a faithful Christian as a believer, married to an unbeliever. Furthermore, um, we could look to the uh, geography, look to culture, culture. One can be a faithful Christian in India, Russia, China, America, Canada, Mexico, One can be a faithful Christian in all sorts of cultures in the world. And again, I think this is probably the third time I'm saying this, but I just really don't want you to misquote me. One cannot be a faithful Christian if you are going against Christianity itself. So, while one can live under communism and be a faithful Christian, one cannot be the one doing the oppressing in communism and be a faithful Christian. While one can be a faithful Christian in Papua New Guinea, one cannot be a faithful Christian and adopt the pagan culture of native Papua New Guinea, and so on and so forth. And I think you get the idea of what we're saying here. So, let me narrow it down to a couple of applications. Number one, be content with where God has placed you, but reject passivity, okay? You see this balance in the text here? Be content with where God's put you. God is the one who's put you there. Don't rush, but also don't be passive. If you can avail yourself to the opportunity to get your freedom, then do it. Number two, make decisions rooted in the gospel. You were bought with a price. So I'm gonna make a change here. How does this further the cause of the gospel? And number three, remain faithful where God has called you. Um, Serve God where you are right now. Don't, I mean, if God has called you to go be, and and by the way, I hope that God will call people from here to go and serve as missionaries across the world, okay? We're trying to kick some of you out. Seriously, this is the gospel call to go, right? Okay. Um, but don't entertain these these grand visions of, oh, I'm going to go and you know serve uh, in in India somewhere and be faithful to this missions organization that needs all kinds of help. Well, there's chairs that need to be put away after the church service, okay? And there's you know meals that need to be brought to people here. And there's, there's, there's people that need to be encouraged here in our church. And there's jobs to be done. There's work to do. There's ministry. There's neighbors to share the gospel with. If you're not faithful here, you're not going to be faithful there. So serve God where you are. Um, if I could try to um, maybe apply this passage to kind of the lingo of 21st century Christianity. I think that, um, I would say that the Corinthian Christians, at least these legalistic ones, were labeling everything as worldly. And to be sure, most of what the world produces stemming from worldly values is worldly. But not everything is worldly just because the world does it. Marriage is not worldly, It, it can be distorted. Sex is not worldly, it is good. But these Christians wanted to abandon those things because they thought, oh, those are worldly. Likewise, we can rejoice that God has, in his common grace, preserved things in our culture that are not inherently worldly. God's common grace has preserved some good things in our culture. And we can be thankful for that. And we can pursue those things as good parts of our culture. We can enjoy marriage, we can enjoy a sunset, we can enjoy feasting together, we can enjoy fellowship, we can enjoy people, we can enjoy the smell of a new book, right? These are evidences of God's common grace in the world, that God has prevented the world from going as far south as it could have gone, because God's kind, And in the same vein, we should enjoy these things because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done for us. When Christ is in it, these things are better. Marriage is sweeter. Grass is greener. Everything with Christ in it is more beautiful. It's more glorious. It it tastes better. It's more enjoyable. Christ makes everything better. Let me close out with one more application. I don't have this one on the screen here. Um, but I, I was thinking I want, I want to try to make this somewhat specific with where our culture is right now. Um, so yes, I'm going to attack our culture here, but only because of the superior goodness of what Christ has given to us, and, and enjoying that. I opened up with an illustration of, you know, my misguided idea that in order to be godly, you know, I've I've got to go suffer in the hardest place possible. We end today with this admonition that we are to serve God where we are. And I just wanna give one specific way in which sometimes we feel discontented uh, in this area, and it's really because of what the world has done to us. But one particular institution that has come under major, major attack today is the family. You do not have to look very far to understand that the world hates family. The world hates your family. The world hates biological man, biological woman, married, together, for life, sex happening only in there, and having children. The world hates that. Um, feminism, critical race theory, Marxism, postmodernism, modernism et al have had the same shared goal to dismantle and demolish the family. And if you don't believe that, I have a whole litany of quotes that I can give you from all of these worldviews saying our goal is to get rid of the family. Okay. I want to encourage husbands and wives. Serve God where you are. Serve God in your fathering your husbanding, serve God in your mothering, and your wifing. I, <laughs> I don't know. Is there a better word for that? Your work in those areas is precious. It is godly. It is good. men, Pursue masculinity. Pursue maleness. Pursue manliness. Women pursue femininity. The the world. I was I was just looking. There's a um. It was actually written about on uh, Psychology Today. This is a few years ago. But there was a study that was done, and I, I um, was doing some digging and, and found this this week. Um, that, do you know who the most miserable group of people are in America? Most miserable group of people? According to this survey on, on happiness in our culture, it is unmarried, 42 year old woman, no kids successful career such as doctor or lawyer is the most miserable person in america right now we could talk about this later but feminism has failed us i know this might be controversial okay but it has failed us embrace what god has called us to do do you realize that there is so much joy in the family. There is joy in being a husband and a father. There is joy being a wife and a mother. There's a joy in raising children. Why? Because this is the way God designed it to work. And God knows what's best for his people. And the way that this application is tying in with this particular message is serve God where you are. You don't have to break free of this biblical culture to find happiness. It's, it's all in what God's already given to us, and there's joy there. Thank you, God, for today, your grace to us. Thank you for the gospel. We pray that you'd help us now as we uh, observe communion together, that we might do it with hearts that honor you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.